Sunday morning in a series entitled Gleanings from the Book of Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisle right now and they'll be happy to put a Bible in your hand and so you can follow along today. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. And uh, just a reminder, next uh, Sunday, it'll be the Sunday before Christmas, so very much a Christmas focus on the message. And, uh, and then our Christmas Eve service on, uh, on Christmas Eve. And uh, both great opportunities to invite uh, friends and family members that don't know the Lord and just to come in and hear what all of this is about and the significance of uh, the birth of a Savior. So uh, sometimes people will come at Christmas time and at Easter when they won't come uh, other times necessarily. And then uh, just a reminder, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, currently studying the book of Daniel. We'll be in Daniel chapter 7 tonight at 6, and uh, each of you are invited. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, we'll pick things up in verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abram, at the valley of uh, Shava, that is the king's valley after his return from the defeat of uh, Shedor Laomer and the kings who were with him. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be, the God, be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, and possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I may not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only that the young men uh, what the young men have eaten and the portion uh, of the men who went with me, uh, Anner, uh, Eshol, and uh, Mamre, let them take their portion. And then let's move to uh, Psalm uh, 110. And so if you're new to the Bible, just open your Bible right up in the middle, typically, in, uh, in, uh, depending on how big the concordance is, and that'll usually put you right in the Psalms, and then find Psalm 110. A single verse there, Psalm 110, and that is verse 4. And David writes, by the Spirit of God, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then in light of what tremendous confidence I have in you, I'll have you turn one more place to Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. And Hebrews chapter 7, if you're new to the Bible, uh, just go all the way to the end on the right and then start making your way back and you'll hit uh, Hebrews sooner rather than later. Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll actually pick things up in the final two verses of chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, prince of the Most High God, who met Abram, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated uh, king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have 
come from the loins of Abraham. But he, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And therefore, if perfection uh, were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be uh, called according to the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he uh, of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from whom no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which the tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing uh, in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and, he, and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, he continue, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. And therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as these, those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for their own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you as we always do for your word. Nothing like it in all of the world and what it accomplishes in us it cannot be accomplished any other way. We thank you for your truth and that your word is truth. We thank you that it is alive, it is, a pow it is powerful, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is all of that, Lord. And we pray that you would grace us by your Holy Spirit and give us a spirit that uh, in our lives that will allow not for the word to become alive, but so that we can appreciate the life that is always there. And we pray, Lord, for this work of your Holy Spirit this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning we're going to uh, solve a problem concerning Jesus uh, that very few Christians have given any thought to. And I would contend that by and large, uh, most Christians have never given uh, a single thought to at all, aware of. But once you become aware of what we're going to address today, you'll realize that it's a problem that must be solved in order for us to rest as uh, peacefully and fully uh, in our Christian life as the Lord desires us to do. This morning, we're introduced to a man by the name of Melchizedek. He is the common denominator to all three passages that we have uh, read here today. So it's not a Christmas message yet. 
It's Melchizedek. He's not the second cousin of Ebenezer. For those of you who might be thinking we're getting uh, to Christmas somewhere in here, uh, we won't. Uh, Melchizedek is one of the most mysterious figures, <clears throat> excuse me, in all of the Bible. And our passage in Genesis, <clears throat> excuse me, our passage in Genesis introduces him to us, but it is really the writer of the book of Hebrews that brings out his significance to us uh, as Christians. And thus we'll spend our time uh, remaining here in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, uh, 7 this morning. Those of you who were with us five and a half years ago when we studied the book of Hebrews on uh, Sunday mornings, uh, you might remember our treatment of all of this at that time, uh, but since it reappears now in our gleaning series in Genesis, it is impossible for me to bypass it. The Bible is uh, supremely a, uh, a salvation history, and Jesus is the central figure of that salvation history, and to fail to understand what Melchizedek speaks to Jesus is to fail to understand uh, Jesus in uh, the full way that, that God intends us to and that is really necessary uh, in our lives. And so I have to revisit it because of the priceless thing that it reveals to us about our Savior. And so forgive me for covering some of the main, uh, same material so closely, but it must be done. Now, I know some of you are thinking, don't sweat it, Pastor. We can't even remember what you said last week, uh, let alone five and a half years ago. And uh, so, okay, fair enough. I mean, it hurts, but fair enough. Um, I, I, I leave each Sunday under the illusion that everyone commits my sermons to memory and, uh, and keeps them memorized for the rest of their life. Now, in, in chapter five, uh, 5 of the book of Hebrews, the writer describes Jesus uh, to be sup a superior high priest to Aaron. And Aaron was Israel's first uh, Old Testament uh, high priest. And Jesus, if he is superior to Aaron, then he is superior to every high priest that came from the bloodline of Aaron. And the writer of the book of Hebrews then gives us the reasons why, uh, and all of this can be really summarized in two points. Jesus is superior uh, because of the superior access that he provides us to God the Father for the simple reason that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and no human high priest uh, ever had that kind of access. And then second, because of the access to heaven that Jesus has provided to us uh, as, uh, as Christians, that uh, for each of us it has made him our high priest. And so Jesus has by virtue of his priesthood and his sacrifice, he has uh, turned the throne of an infinitely holy and perfect and righteous God into a throne of grace uh, for sinners. We could approach no other throne than a throne uh, of, of grace. And that now as Christians, we are free to approach that throne uh, any time, day or night, and to approach that throne as often as we like. Now, having stated this, the writer of the book of Hebrews then anticipated the question that... <clears throat> Any Hebrew uh, listening to him or any Hebrew uh, reading his uh, letter, he knew would immediately have a question arise in their mind. And the question would be this, how can Jesus be a high priest when he is of the tribe of Judah and not of the tribe of Levi? Uh, because the Old Testament high priests were all of the tribe of Levi and even more specifically of the bloodline of Israel's first high priest, Aaron. Doesn't the fact that Jesus is of the tribe of Judah completely disqualify him from ever claiming uh, to be a high priest, let alone holding that position? And that's a good question. And that is a very, very important question. And maybe you have never considered that before in, in your Christian life. 
But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the Levitical priesthood uh, or the Aaronic priesthood is not the only God-ordained priesthood mentioned in the Old Testament. He reminds us that there is a second one, a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, as he speaks of it there in chapter 6, verse 20. Now, the background of the whole story is found in Genesis chapter 14, where uh, Abram, after this great military victory over four kings that had come in and conquered that entire uh, part of Canaan, including the city of Sodom, where Abram's nephew by the name of Lot was uh, abiding in and taken captive uh, as well. And Abram took a, a force of men in and defeated these kings. And following Abram's military victory uh, and the rescue of his nephew Lot, Abram returned home from the battle and as he did so, he was greeted by two kings. And uh, the first king was the king of Sodom who came out to greet him and he was thankful for Abram's victory over the enemies and he wanted to reward Abram for the victory by giving him some kind of material wealth. And, uh, and, and thus, uh, but the king of Sodom was a very wicked king. He was a king over a very, very wicked realm. And as a result, Abram refused to receive uh, anything from this king, uh, lest that king would later say he had made Abram rich or had, had made him uh, powerful. The second king who came out to greet Abram upon his return from this victory was a king by the name of Melchizedek. And he was called there the king of Salem. He also came out to greet uh, Abram concerning this Melchizedek. There are many, many Bible students, many, many uh, Bible scholars who believe that Melchizedek was a Christophany or uh, a theophany, that he was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ prior to his incarnation. There are other Christians who uh, look at uh, Melchizedek, this very mysterious person in the scriptures, and uh, they look at him and they believe that Melchizedek was a historical figure. He was a literal man uh, whose description in the Bible by the Holy Spirit is carefully crafted and carefully stated uh, so as to be an Old Testament picture or an Old Testament type of Jesus as our high priest. And you've got wonderful Christians who hold one or the other of the views, and they agree to agree disagreeably uh, on the issue and, uh, and uh, are free to do so because what a person believes on that point uh, really does no harm to the point that the Holy Spirit is wanting to communicate to us uh, concerning Jesus as our high priest. You notice in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, that the writer there, what he declares to be true of Melchizedek. He says in verse 1 that he was the king of Salem. Salem was ultimately going to become the city of Jerusalem. He says further in verse 1 that he was a priest of the Most High God. And so in Melchizedek we have this combining of the two offices, very significantly, the combining of the two offices of king and priest, just as we do in Jesus. Further in verse 1, Melchizedek blessed Abram when Abram was returning from uh, the slaughter of, of the kings. And then further in verse 2, Abram uh, gave a, a tithe to Melchizedek, a tenth of the spoils from the battle. And then uh, notice two very important titles that are ascribed to Melchizedek there in verse 2. Uh, we're told that his name means king of righteousness. And his title, the King of Salem, means that he is the King of Peace. And both of those titles that Melchizedek held uh, are names that were fully realized in Christ. Uh, Jesus is the King of Righteousness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 
John writes, My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he, that is the Father, made uh, him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus declared to his disciples, he said, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be uh, afraid. He said uh, further in John's gospel, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And the point that the writer of the book of Hebrews is making is that uh, as a high priest, Jesus supplies a righteousness and a peace uh, to mankind that the Levitical priesthood never could. The description continues in verse 3, uh, that Melchizedek was without father or mother, not speaking necessarily of being uh, parentless in actuality, but in terms of the biblical record. He, he is portrayed by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit deliberately portrays him and paints him in the Old Testament, there's no mention of uh, his parents. He's described in verse 3 further as without genealogy. There's no mention of his genealogy anywhere in the three passages that he's mentioned in. And uh, the simple reason for that is because while a genealogy was absolutely vital for the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, uh, it is not important in the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek for the simple reason that as our high priest, Jesus will never die. He will never vacate uh, that uh, that position and never need to be replaced. The description goes on in verse 3 concerning Melchizedek having neither beginning of days nor end of life, a picture of him being eternal, and then further in verse 3, made like the Son of God, and finally in verse 3, that he remains a priest continually. Now, as we have read Melchizedek is mentioned three times in three different places within uh, the Scriptures. And first he's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. And following that mention of him in Genesis chapter 14, very interestingly, there is a 1,000-year gap, a 1,000-year silence before he is ever mentioned again. And then after that thousand years, he was mentioned again by King David in Psalm 110, verse 4. And then following the mention by David, there is another thousand years of silence until finally he is mentioned once again repeatedly by the writer uh, of the book of Hebrews in quoting Psalm uh, 110 in this section of Scripture. In Psalm 110, in Psalm 110, is thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly messianic. It is one of the great descriptions of the coming Messiah and all of the Old Testament. And in Psalm uh, 110, the Holy Spirit, through David, does this remarkable thing and that he describes the Messiah who is to come in four ways. He declares that the Messiah will be divine, that he will be a king, that he will be a priest, and that he will be a judge. Again, as Messiah, as priest, David wrote, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the fact that the Holy Spirit declared that Messiah would be both, both king and priest was a source of enormous confusion for the Jews because they knew that the promised Messiah would come as a ruler from the tribe of Judah. 
because the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, had declared that that would be the case. Through the uh, Jewish patriarch uh, Jacob, God declared the scepter in Genesis chapter 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. God had promised David that he, the Lord, would bring the promised Messiah into the world through David's bloodline. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God said to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be established before you. Your throne will be established forever. And David was a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Even as Jesus was, Revelation chapter 5, one of the most beautiful pictures in the entire Revelation. Uh, John is writing and he uh, uh, declared in chapter 5 verse 4, And so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. But then David also declared in Psalm 110 that the Messiah would be a priest. And the priestly tribe of Israel was the tribe of Levi. The Levitical priesthood and the high priest himself had to come from the tribe of Levi. Big problem. Really, really big problem. In fact, for the Jews, uh, all of this that's being spoken of, the the fact that Messiah would be both a king and a priest, it, it created a seemingly impossible problem in the mind of the Jews. Because in their minds, the Messiah could be either a king or he could be a priest. But he could not be both because he could not be a descendant of both the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi at the same time. If he is of the tribe of Levi, then he cannot be king, but King Messiah, if he is of the tribe of Judah, then he cannot be a priest. And the Jews recognized the contradiction. They saw it. And how they resolved to deal with it was to uh, choose to basically ignore or at least massively uh, minimize those passages in the Old Testament that spoke of the Messiah as priest while emphasizing uh, at the same time the, the coming of Messiah as a king from the tribe of Judah. And that was their solution, to ignore the passage that declared Messiah would be a priest and instead emphasize the fact that the Messiah would be a king born of the tribe of Judah. And so uh, for a thousand years... This prophecy of David found in uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, it, it sat there, and it sat uh, gathering dust in the corner of the prophetic library of the Old Testament, completely ignored by everyone until a thousand years later when the writer of the book of Hebrews walked over into that corner, he blew a thousand years worth of prophetic dust off of this prophecy concerning the Messiah, and he put it back into play in, in human history. And what he did, the writer of the book of Hebrews, is he reminded the world. He did not inform them uh, for the first time. He reminded them that God had prophesied all along 
that Messiah would not be a priest after the order of Aaron or the tribe of Levi, but that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that just as Melchizedek had the double role, the dual role of king and priest at Jerusalem, as it's described in Genesis chapter 14, so too the offices of king and priest would be united forever over all mankind in the Messiah, uh, in Jesus. And, and so as he brings this forth in the book of Hebrews, He is letting them know in quoting Psalm 110 uh, verse 4 repeatedly, time after time after time in the passage, he is letting the whole world know and specifically uh, the Jews to know that all of this was no invention of his as the writer of the book of Hebrews. That this understanding of Jesus is no mere invention of of the New Testament, or or even the invention of King David. But it is not only witnessed to by King David in Psalm 110, but even further in the New Testament in declaring uh, this to be true of the coming Messiah, that he would be both king and priest. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, Zechariah wrote of the Messiah, Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. And so he shall be a priest on his throne. And the course council of peace shall be between them both. And through David, God had declared to the entire world a thousand years before Jesus was born that he was going to establish another priesthood for Messiah without any of the limitations of the Levitical priesthood, a priesthood that would last forever and ever and that it would have a membership of but one. So that when it happened, Everyone would recognize this new priesthood, and they would recognize it to be as fully ordained by God as the Old Testament Levitical priesthood was recognized. And on the day that Jesus, uh, of his crucifixion, as he was being examined by a, uh, an assembly of Jewish religious leaders. And among that assembly of Jewish religious leaders, there was Caiaphas, the high priest. And Jesus was accused of being of blasphemy for simply declaring to them that he was uh, divine and the Son of God and that he was the promised Messiah and Savior of the Jews. And when Jesus speaks this concerning himself, Caiaphas, the high priest, he tore his clothes, we're told. He tore his robe open and he accused Jesus of blasphemy as it's all recorded there in Matthew chapter 26. And as Caiaphas tears his robe, uh, the symbolism of it, the significance of it is completely lost upon uh, him. But it is not lost upon Jesus. And it is not lost upon heaven. And hopefully it's not lost upon any of us uh, as well. What Caiaphas didn't realize was that on this day, more than his robe was going to be torn. And on that day, the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the entire Levitical priesthood would be torn in half in order to make a way for a new priesthood, one according to the order of Melchizedek. And a few hours later, on that same day, when Jesus died on that cross, God Almighty himself, God the Father himself, who had sworn and would not relent Uh, A thousand years earlier that he would make Messiah both king and priest. He reached down by the Holy Spirit, a miracle of the Holy Spirit, into that temple of the Jews in Jerusalem, and he tore the massive veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies from top to bottom, and he did so in order to announce the arrival of this new priesthood. Because from that moment forward, access to God, 
uh, no longer would come through the Levitical priesthood, but now through a single priest, a priesthood of one, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who alone provides us with an unparalleled access to God and provides us with the means by which to have an unparalleled intimacy in our relationship uh, with God and access in an intimacy that God the Father desires. One of the fascinating things about Psalm 110 verse 4 is that there is no way that that passage in the Bible Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. There is, there is no way that anyone can understand that verse apart from its messianic fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. In all of human history, it points to only one person, and that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the fact that Jesus is a priest from the kingly tribe of Judah is never a reason for rejecting him as Messiah. It is a cause, an even greater cause, for trusting in him as Messiah and as our Savior. Now, let me close by briefly bringing out the implications of all of this. As the writer of the book of Hebrews does in chapter 7, and give you three reasons why the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. Number one in verses four through 10, uh, it, it is demonstrated the greatness, uh, greaterness of Jesus' priesthood in the fact that Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And Abram received Melchizedek's his blessing. This Melchizedek was so great that even the patriarch Abram gave a tenth of the spoils to him. And when Abram, here the father of the Jewish people, the father of the Jewish nation, when he came into contact with Melchizedek, he recognized Melchizedek to be greater than himself and as evidenced in his paying of tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, we're told, not only received tithes from Abram, but Abram also received Melchizedek's uh, blessing. And as the writer of Hebrews brings out in verses six and seven, everybody knows that the lesser is always blessed by the greater in terms of their position, in terms of their authority. And this clearly revealed Melchizedek to be greater than Abram. And here's the point. And you might be saying, please give me a point here in all of this. What is being communicated? And what the writer of the book of Hebrews is communicating is if Abram did not have a problem with publicly acknowledging the superiority of Melchizedek compared to himself, then no descendant of Abram, physical or spiritual, should ever have a problem acknowledging the superiority of the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood. The second thing that the writer brings out in this chapter in verses 11 through 22 is that the priesthood according to Melchizedek is superior because the Aaronic priesthood could make nothing perfect. Now, so now the writer goes from anticipating questions that people might have from him and specifically from a Jewish reader of his letter to now posing uh, one of his own to them, which is best stated in verse 11, where in essence he says this, if perfection could be attained through the Levitical priesthood, then why did God speak of another priesthood to come 400 years later through David after the giving of the law of Moses and the establishing of the Levitical priesthood? And the answer to that is because God never intended 
the Levitical priesthood to be his final word or his final will concerning the uh, priesthood. He had always intended to supplant the Levitical priesthood with something superior. In verses 23 to 28, the priesthood according to Melchizedek, we're told, is superior to the Aaronic priesthood based upon the fact that it, uh, it is an unchanging uh, priesthood. It's very important to recognize in Psalm 110 verse 4, uh, the word forever there. Let me read it to you once again. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, this priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, is a priesthood made up of only one priest, and that priest is Jesus. And it is made up of only one priest for the simple reason that this high priest, unlike the Old Testament high priest, will never die in this role. And he will never need to be uh, replaced as a result. And this is a forever due to a no interruption due to death priesthood uh, that is the priesthood according to Melchizedek. And thus, this Messiah, thus Jesus, uh, because he is this high priest, in verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And the idea is that he is personally uh, able to do so because he will never vacate the office. He will never vacate his role as a high priest for any reason, including death. In other words, the basis of our access to God, the intimacy, the basis for our intimacy and our relationship with God will never, ever, ever be handed off to anyone else. It will forever be in the hands of Jesus, and because it will always be in his hands, it is eternally sure and safe. And as a result of it in verse 26, and I like the description of Jesus as high priest there, he declares that Jesus is fitting for us as sinners. He fits us. Now, this is a sinner's savior, and this is a, 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 he is a perfect match for our every need uh, and in his role as our savior and as our king and as our high priest. And when you stop and you look at this, and I know that in uh, declaring and teaching this message this morning that I have lost some portion of you at five minutes, at 15 minutes, at 20 minutes in all of this, and yet I deliver the message. Why? Because I don't care. I don't care that I lose you because we'll all be lost if you can follow the whole thing through. It's such a marvel what it is here. And the whole idea is for to just come at us, and, and I'm intentional related to it, is it will just hit us wave after wave after wave as the writer of the book of Hebrews brings it out until we look at it and we marvel at the detail and the planning that has gone into our salvation. And to be able to look and to realize what is the perfection of this Savior that God has provided to us as, as sinners. And it is a marvel, really, to, to realize. And when I think about Jesus and I think about the detail with which the Scriptures describe him, and the beauty of it, the majesty of it, how unrelenting it is, like wave after wave as you would go through the scriptures, as, uh, as is declared concerning the entire Bible, the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. And when we read passages like this and explore truths like this, it always makes me think of the person who uh, dismisses Christianity with words like, I just believe that we all get to heaven by being good people. 
or I just believe that all roads ultimately leave to God, lead to God. And all of the I thinks and all of the I wills and I think and I will and I think and I will and I think and I will. And when I hear it and I hear it all of the time just like you do, I just want to say to them, shush, be quiet. Who cares what you think, I believe, I think, I believe, I think about economics, about politics, about entertainment, about anything, our views will die with us. And so to just stop with all of that and to take for a moment in time under the weight of a passage like this and to take all of a person's I thinks and I believe and put it up against the perfection of this Savior and of this salvation and see how it stands against that. It is one thing to think I believe and I think about all of the nonsense and all the inconsequential things of life. It is another thing to take and to hide behind or to espouse or to, uh, to declare out and by means of, of converting people to the I thinks and I believe when you enter into the realm of salvation and you enter into the realm of how desperate our need is as sinners and what God will accept in salvation and what he will accept in order for a sinner to have a relationship with him. And it's no wonder that John Stott wrote, ignorance is probably the greatest enemy of the Christian faith today. And it's true. It is not intellectualism. That is a self-deception. People thinking this, too smart or too intellectual for Christianity. You can't be too intellectual to engage in a relationship with God or a conversation with God on any subject. It is not intellectualism that is the great enemy of faith in Christ, an enemy to Christianity. It is an ignorance. It is an ignorance of this book. It is an ignorance of Christ. It is an ignorance of the majesty of the salvation that is provided to mankind. And we are responsible for that ignorance. If there was only one Bible that existed in the entire world, every one of us would be uh, responsible for having read that Bible and gotten to that Bible, let alone living in a land where you can buy one for $5 or get one free in any church that you want to attend to. The existence of that Bible in human history makes us responsible to compare what it is that God has said in this book to anything we think or anything that we believe. Shakespeare put it this way in one of his plays. He said, but man, a proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he's most assured, his glassy essence like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as makes the angels weep who with our spleens would all themselves laugh mortal. And, and uh, one way of putting it is man, poor man, so ignorant in what he knows best. And it is absolutely the truth uh, about us. And what Shakespeare is saying is that if the angelic beings could possess a spleen like us, if they could possess and, and be in this worldly scene and view it merely from the vantage point of earth, merely from the vantage point of man, and they watch all of our proud discourse and all of our proud uh, suppositions about God, if they were in a different place than the role that they are in, they would laugh at us. But why don't they laugh? They don't laugh because the stakes are so high and because eternity is so long and because eternity hinges on what a person does with Jesus Christ. And all of the I thinks and all of the I believes and all of the maybes of man are heartbreaking from the vantage point of heaven as they are used to keep a person from exploring the book and ultimately coming to know Christ as Savior, as King, as High uh, Priest. And who cares 
what we think about anything and our shallow speculations about anything, much less how man is to be saved, especially in the light of the power and the wisdom and the love that is found in the salvation that God has provided to mankind in Jesus Christ alone. Now, the far better response is to humble ourselves before that kind of a salvation and that kind of Savior, and then to make them our own. By coming to God this morning and saying, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe that you are so holy, but one sin in my life separates me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me and my soul so much that you were willing to send your son into the world to be born and then to die and be buried and rise again on the third day so that I could have a savior and that I could have a salvation and that I could have a relationship now with you in this life and the confidence of heaven after this life. And with that, to then in crying out to God, and, and surrendering my life and trusting in Jesus for my salvation, then the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we're born again by the Holy Spirit. You ever look at Christians as a non-saved person and you think, we're nuts. You say, what in the world has happened to them? How could so many people not believe it and these people believe it like crazy? It's because God has come into our lives by the Holy Spirit. And he's brought the witness of the truth of it into our lives. And he will do the same thing for you. And so you cannot place yourself in any uh, better hands uh, possible. Uh, Not in this life, not in the life to come, than in the hands of Jesus Christ himself. And if you have never done that, There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God, the relationship with God that you have been created for and without which nothing will make any sense in life. And all of this is there for the asking. All of it is there for the receiving. And I beseech you, I beg you, please, to come and give your life to Christ this morning and to take care of this single greatest decision that you will make in the course of your life. And everyone makes a decision, whether in accepting him or rejecting him, it's still a decision. But make the right decision, the decision that he has been provided to you in order that you might make, and then to do it with a sense of privilege and with a sense of awe. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for how you have, by your Spirit, opened our hearts up to these truths as Christians, how all of this is life to us, how all of it is more important to us than our daily bread. And Lord, you have placed within our hearts by your Holy Spirit a longing for every human being in the world to know this same thing that we know with you and to know you in the same way. And Lord, I pray and I pray here with my brothers and my sisters And pray that you would use this time in your word this morning and this sermon to just break through any pride or any ignorance or any just dullness and non-thinking in anyone's life and to cause them to see this is the truth, Lord, and for it to make sense to them and to surrender today and to come to you and become your child and as part of your kingdom. And we trust all of this to you toward that end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.